I was 12 years old, and my plan was to go on the mission field to the Dominican Republic for one summer to help build a, a church there. I know, me building anything is a surprise, but uh, it was going to cost about $2,000 to be able to go, and, and uh, today that sounds like a pretty good deal, but back then it might as well have been all the money in the world. I really, from the beginning, didn't know if I was going to be able to raise that type of money to spend the summer uh, on mission, but my dad instantly kind of just affirmed with me. He said, Mike, he says, $2,000 is nothing to God, no big deal, we'll, we'll get it, and God will supply it, and you'll be on the mission field next year, and, and so I said, okay, and he says, but now you need to get to work, and so I did, and I began to do everything I possibly could, sending out letters, but mostly working, cutting grass, doing little odd jobs, whatever I could do to try to raise some support, and as I began to work through this and, and try, to, try to get everything done, it was, it was apparent that I wasn't doing so well with collecting all of this money. And in fact, a week before, less than a week before the money was due, all $2,000, I counted the money that I had, and I was about $1,000 in. I was $1,000 short. And so, uh, things, I, so at this, this point, I do what every good Christian young man does who's, who's been raised in the church, and he's desperate for money. He throws a car wash, and um, he gets all of his buddies and go, hey, come work for nothing. I need some money. And so we started this car wash, and as all car washes, if you can break $100, it's a miracle of God. And so we washed all day, and we came just short, I think, of about $100 or so. And, and I was down, to be honest with you. I was devastated. I was just thinking to myself, I had a feeling that this probably wasn't going to happen. And as I'm sitting there, we're beginning to clean up the buckets and begin to roll up the hoses. All of a sudden, this woman in this yellow Mercedes Benz pulls up and she says, is it too late for me to get a car wash? And of course, my flesh said, yes, lady, it's too late. But my father was standing next to me and I said, of course, it's not late. Please come. I would love to wash your car. And so we did, unrolled everything, started washing your car, got done with it at the end. And, and and uh, she said, listen, I'm a little bit short on cash. Is it okay if I write a check? I said, that, that would be fine. She writes a check, gives it to me, you know. And later on, when I check out the check, take, check out the check, and uh, I look at it, um, I look, and she, it's a check written for $1,000. $1,000 for a car wash. Yes, I'm just that good. And... Uh, <laughs> So I went to my dad, I took it to, to over to my dad, and I just told him, I said, Dad, she wrote us a check for $1,000, and he just had this little smirk on his face, that like know-it-all type look, Dad, you know what it is, and he turned, and he goes, I told you, I told you every bit of this was going to work out, I told you back in the beginning that you were going to end up there, and I said, well, Dad, how did you know that? He goes, I just knew it. And I said, well, what if this woman hadn't come and, and written that check? He, she, he goes, but she did. And I sat there and I go, yeah, but what if, she, what if she didn't? He goes, son, listen to me. He goes, my plan for you was that you were going to spend a summer on mission building a church in, in the Dominican Republic. If nobody gave you a dime, I had all the means in the world to make sure that you were where I wanted you to ultimately be. And this is a really clear reminder, or at least it reminds me of the truth, the wonderful truth of God, that God has a plan. And that plan includes winning, winning men, women, and children from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people group from around the world. And one day, we will spend all eternity with a holy God. Amen? But in the midst of that, it's a little bit hard to figure out. 
When you're in the midst of it and you're raising children, you're going through difficulties and you have pressures and difficulties and sickness and, and marital problems and arguments and all these different types of things, sometimes you're in the middle of it and you kind of know what is ultimately to come, but you're sitting there and sometimes you begin to think to yourself, how in the world is God going to ever be able to pull this off with all of this that is opposing us? How is it going to happen? And what the Word of God assures us is, is that one day, guess what? One day, all of us will be gathered together in heaven. Those that have repented, placed their faith in Jesus Christ, will be in heaven with God. And it won't surprise me if God turns to every single one of us and says to us, Hey, I told you so. I told you that exactly this is exactly the way that it was going to ultimately turn out. I love this truth in this text. I think that truth is what we find here in this text. This story reminds us the fact that God has a plan and it cannot be thwarted. It may appear at some times that it might be a little bit derailed or it may not be going according to plan. But this text tells us that God's plan cannot be deterred. It cannot be frustrated. It will come true. But it also does something else. It doesn't just give us assurance that it's ultimately to come true. It also gives us an encouragement about how God works his plan to become true. He shows in this text we actually see how God goes about fulfilling this plan of his. And there are two things that I want to highlight today in our short bit of time. I apologize for the parents that uh, we we're so grateful for you that your kids have been attending the youth group. Maybe this isn't the church that you go to. And so the good news is you got to celebrate with the kids. The bad news is you have to hear me preach. And so let me apologize for that. But hopefully it won't be too painful. Two things we want to point out today. Number one. God's work is often out of sight, but should not be out of mind. God's work sometimes is out of sight, but it should not be out of mind. Now, let me give you a little bit of background. There's a man by the name of Absalom. He's the son of David. Let me catch you up with the story. And he has, through a long series of, of underhanded backstabbings of his father, he has now been able to get the majority of Israel to be able to follow his leadership. And now, in order to obtain the throne, to actually grasp it, the only thing standing in his way is his father. He just has to knock him off. And in order to do this, he actually enlists the help of a man by the name of Ahithophel. And all you need to know about him is he was the smartest dude around. He had an uncanny ability to have incredible wisdom. And so he enlists this man's help, and, and he comes up with a strategy for Absalom to be able to defeat his father. The first part of his plan was actually to begin to create an act that was immoral. At the end of chapter 16, we didn't read it, but let me explain it. He actually tells him to actually go into his father's harem and have relationships with those concubines. Now, to catch you up to speed again, a couple chapters before, we found out that when David was running from his life, from his son Absalom, he left behind some of these concubines to take care of the palace and the administration of it. And so now, Absalom is going to go in and have relationships with these women, which he actually does. What would be the point of that? The point of that would be to rally the troops. For a man to take another person's harem, it was declaring, they were declaring that they were in fact the rightful king. And so if you do that, there's no turning back. You can't sit there and go, oh, I'm sorry, that was a mistake. No, you're going to be killed by your father, the king. So this would have emboldened all the people that were following him to say, you know what, Absalom truly wants to be king. This shows he wants to be king. So this would have ultimately fired him up. So this wasn't just a part of his first plan. This was also a part of the fulfillment of prophecy. 
earlier in this particular book, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, when, when David was confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan, he was condemned and he was judged. And, and this is one of the things that, that the prophet said to him. He says, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. You see what happened there? David steals another man's wife. He does it in secret. Now, now another man comes and steals his wives, and he does it in light. Now, scholars are not really agreed here. They don't know if it actually means that he took part in these relations publicly, or if he did them, and then the truth of them were made publicly. Either way, guess what? What God said was going to happen, happened exactly the way that he said he was going to do it. So the first part of his plan was, was really uh, uh, to a, an act of immorality. The second part dealt militarily. He comes up with this brilliant military plan beginning in chapter 17, and he lays it in its threefold approach. The first thing he tells the king to do is use overwhelming force. He says, send 12,000 men against David's men. David had less than 2,000 men. And by sending such a massive force, what would happen is it would serve as a psychological victory for Absalom's troops. It would empower them, and it would deflate the confidence of David's men. The second thing that he told him to do was simply to, to, to go and to use an element of surprise. Uh, usually when people fought during that day, uh, they, would, they would fight in the light. You kind of want to see who it is that you're fighting against. And so and here he says, listen, let's not wait until the next day. Let's attack him at night when he would not be expecting it. They're weary, they're tired, they're weak. We're going to catch them off guard. And then the third part was this, is that they wanted to remain narrowly focused in their objective. They didn't want to go and defeat all of David's men. What they wanted to do is go and defeat one man. They said, here's our objective. We're going to find David wherever he is, and we're going to put him to death. Well, guess what? This was a brilliant plan. And, and, and these men, uh, Absalom and his men recognized it. The Bible says in verse 4 that the advice seemed right to the eyes of Absalom and all the elders of Israel. Now, here's the weird part. It's an ex excellent, foolproof plan, but for whatever reason, now mark that, for whatever reason, Absalom doesn't take the advice. He rather seeks even more advice. And so he goes to another man, uh, and, and he comes to him, and he basically says to him, his name is Hushai, and in verse 6, he says, thus has Ahithophel spoken, shall we do what he says, if not, you speak. In other words, is this a good plan? Do you affirm this plan? Or should we do something else? And if we should do something else, tell me it is. Tell me what it is that we ought to do. And so this is how Hushai responds. This time the counsel that Ahithophel has given is not good. Is, usually this guy gets it right 100% of the time, but in this case he's wrong. Very quickly, here's what he does. At this point, he begins to, un, he begins to tear apart um, Ahithophel's plan. He basically says, hey man, you don't need to send just 12 men. That's ridiculous. These men are ticked. He says, they're as ticked as a, as a she-bear being separated by her cubs. You do not want to mess with mama bear, all right? And so they're angry. He says, you don't want to mess with that. He says, secondly, you'll never sneak, sneak up on David. You know that at night, he's always hiding in some elusive cave somewhere. You're never going to end up finding him. So by doing this, he basically tears apart the plan that was presented. 
And then, in turn, he presents another plan. He says in verse 11, But my counsel is that all Israel be gathered to you from Dan to Beersheba as the sand by the sea for multitude, and that you go to battle in person. So here's what he tells him to do. He says, what you need to do is you don't need 12,000. You need everybody in the kingdom to go and fight. The dude is a bad dude. Now, what this would ultimately do is now it would take more time for them to prepare to go and attack David, which would allow David now to not only escape, I'm trying to tell you the end of the story, not only to be able to escape, but it would also give them more time to be able to prepare and to understand what it was that Absalom was going to do against them. The second thing that he does is he begins to stroke this guy's ego. He says, not only should all of Israel go, but you should be the one who ultimately leads. That's what Ahithophel's plan did not have. He began to conjure it up, and he says, nobody can fight like you, king. Nobody's going to be able to beat your father except for a son of the king. So this apparently does it, because in verse 14, the Bible says, and Absalom and all the men of Israel said, the counsel of Hushai the Archai is better than the, than the counsel of Ahithophel. Fell. Now, it's important just if you don't know who this Hushai guy is. A couple chapters before, we found out that he's actually a spy on the part of David. He was actually David's right-hand man. He was a counselor of him. And we found out that when David was fleeing Jerusalem and he was trying to get away, Hushai says, hey, I'm coming with you. He says, I don't want you to come with me. What I want you to do is I want you to go back to the king and I want you to tell him that you're going to serve him now. And it's exactly what he did at the end of chapter 16. He went to him and he says, you know what? Just as I was faithful to my father, your father David, now I'm going to be faithful to you. And guess what? Absalom takes it hook, line, and sinker. So he believes. And so he's listening to this man's advice. But the interesting thing when you're looking at all this, he takes it. But the question is, why does he take it? Why, does, why did he reject Ahithophel's plan in, in his wisdom? Listen, this is, the, this, is the, this is the babe Ruth of wisdom. Do you understand? He's batting a thousand. This guy is never wrong. You are a fool not to answer it. And the answer is... Is it, is it one, because he was just brilliant? Hushai just came up with an awesome plan? He was, he, he was just really good at sucking up and stroking the ego of this king? Nope. The Bible actually tells us what the answer of this is. And the answer is found in verse 14. Note, for the Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. I want you to note something. At the end of chapter 16... And the beginning of all this story that I just told you, you guys are like, wow, this is a really long story. There was no mention of God in any of it. None of it. And so this whole time, all these people are talking and they're doing and they're saying and people are going here and there and they're doing all these other things. And we don't think that God is a part of any of it until the author of this book, who is inspired by the Holy Spirit, says, hey, I need to let you know that it doesn't look like God's doing anything, but everything that has happened is being done exactly as God has ultimately scripted it and planned it. God is, in fact, working in the midst of all of this. And so he tells them and he, and he, and he shares them. And it's interesting that word ordain literally means to determine. He, he determined that all of these things were going to happen precisely the way that they did in order to protect David, his family, to secure his throne, and to be able to bring to death this man, Absalom. Now, when we talk about God's determining things, when we talk about him ordaining things, we're talking about God's sovereign rule. Now, let me see if you agree with this. God's sovereign rule is simply means this, that God is God and you are not. 
Do I have an amen? All right, very good. Two of you, that's great. Let's see if we can keep working on that. That means that God is the creator of all things and all people, which means he has the rightful position to be able to do with his creation as he chooses to be able to do. Is that right? Well, I got a better amen. That's, That's actually better. All right, that's pretty good. He has the right. Well, not only does he have the right to do what he wants with his creation, he's actually doing something with his creation. He actually has a plan. He's actually taken a fallen world, an upside-down world, and he's slowly but surely turning it right side, back, right side up. I kind of messed that up. Right side up to be able to get it to where he ultimately had planned it, to beginning back to the garden. This is what God is doing. He's in the midst of this working. Here's the difficulty is you and I, even though we know bits and pieces of God's sovereign plan, we don't know it all, do we? In fact, we don't know it until after it's already happened. It's just like these guys. When they look back and all this was happening, they're like, well, tell me what happened. Well, you know, this guy, you know, Hushai, you know, we know Hushai. He was pretty smart. He went in. He talked to the king. He came up with a plan. It was pretty cool. And the king really ended up taking it. We didn't know at the time whether he should or not. Do you see how this goes? And then what happens is, but after the fact, they realize God was orchestrating every bit, every single part of what is ultimately going on. A lot of what God is doing is secret. We just don't know it until after the fact. It's kind of like, it's kind of like a surprise party. I don't want to bring up any sad feelings. Maybe nobody's ever thrown you a surprise party, but it's okay. I feel bad for those who have had a surprise party thrown to them. It's a very uncomfortable thing, right? And if they do it right, you're truly surprised. I mean, you literally, my wife showed one, you know, threw me one one time, and, and I was truly shocked. Uh, I mean, people are jumping out of places at you, ah, surprise, and, and they're yelling at you, and you're like, ah. Uh, what did I do? And then you turn, and the only thing you know to do is turn to your wife, and you go, did you do all this? I did. You know, I was behind all this. And, and you see, and, the, and then there's Uncle Larry and Uncle Tom and Aunt Beatrice, and you say, how, how, how in the world did you do all this stuff? And then as you begin to talk, then all of a sudden things begin to make sense, right? You're like, I was, I was wondering why you were whispering all the time. And I was wondering why you weren't home a whole bunch. And, and I was wondering what all of those charges to Party Warehouse were all about. And, but, but now that I see it, I put it all together. All that time, I didn't think you were doing anything. In fact, I thought you were not doing anything. And, and, and at the end of this, I find out that behind all of this, you brought all of this together for me. It's incredible. It's awesome. And so this is the truth of the believer in Jesus Christ. For the believer in Jesus Christ, we're going about our way. God says, this is what I want you to do. And we're just trying to be obedient as we're going around our way. And we know God has this huge plan. But the truth of the matter is, in the midst of the difficulty and hardship, not only are we thinking to ourselves, how is he ever going to get this done? You and I have a tendency to think he may not be doing anything at all. He's not working at all. He's not doing anything. But you know that there has been times in your life that you went through very difficult times, maybe a sickness of a child, maybe difficulties in a marriage, maybe difficulties with a job, whatever it is. And when you were in the midst of that, you were wondering, God, why don't you move? And then at the very end, when God took you out of that, you looked back like I did on many different occasions, and you looked back and you thought to yourself, now I see what it was that God was doing. It's the same thing that your life and my life is all about. And one day we will get into heaven and we will do that. We'll get into heaven and go, dude, I couldn't believe it. Do you remember that time? Do you remember that time? We thought there was no hope. Did you know that wasn't what God was doing? No, I didn't know. So that brings us great hope. But here's the thing. The hope is not just for the end. That's the point of the text. 
He doesn't give us verse 14 and the truth of verse 14 when everybody is secure and, 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 and David is, is okay and he's back on the throne. It doesn't say, oh, and God was working at all that. In the midst of the difficulty in the insecurity is when this author writes and reminds us God is working in the midst of this. He is working in the midst of this. You know, we struggle oftentimes with this idea of the sovereignty of God. Look, it's hard to get your arms around if you truly know what it means. In other words, you have this tension throughout all the Word of God, free will of man, sovereign plan of God. Would you agree? I mean, here it is. Okay, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says somehow Absalom, in doing what he wanted to do, making his own decisions, even sinful ones, he did all of this without being coerced by God, and yet God, without coercing Absalom to commit sin or being guilty of orchestrating it, was in fact bringing about his own sovereign unseen plan. Read all of Scripture. Go, Go back to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Whose fault? Judas' fault. The Jews' fault. The Romans' fault. Then you turn around and read the next Scripture. This is exactly God's plan. In the midst of this, not guilty of sin. Do, do you guys see how frustrating that is? You're sitting there going, I, I don't understand this. And, but yet it's this tension that we live in. If you're a person of the word of God, it's a tension that you live in when you're in the Bible, when we're, when we're reading it, one moment after another, a, a story after story, we see this tension. But here's what I want you to understand. God's sovereign plan is not meant to frustrate you and me. It's meant to encourage us. Not for us to go sit there and go, how is he going to do it? And I don't understand how this works. And he's, not, and he's not viable for sin. And yet they're sinning. And yet this is all his own plan. You know what it's meant for you and I to do? Is to encourage us that however he's doing, he's doing it. He's working. You may not feel as God, God is working. You may not see that God is working. But that's how he works. It may be out of sight. But it cannot be out of your mind. Number two. And good news is we're more than halfway done. All right? Amen to that? All right? Um, thank you for not saying amen. Um, number two, God's work is not always spectacular but effective nonetheless. It's not always spectacular but effective nonetheless. David had given Hushai two assignments. He says, this is what you're going to do. You're going to go and you're going to do your best to frustrate uh, Ahithophel's plans. You're going to frustrate these things and try to mess things up. Check, did that. Second thing you need to do is when you find out what the king is going to do, I need you to send word to me so that I can plan accordingly. Well, the difficult for Hushai right now is he really doesn't know what the king is going to do at this point. He doesn't know whether he's going to, he knows he liked his advice, but he doesn't know if he's going to ultimately take it or if he's going to go with Ahithophel. So basically, he just kind of plans for the worst. He seeks out two priests, one by the name of Zadok and the other by a, a, named Abiathar. And these two are faithful to David. And he goes to them, and he lets them know, hey, look, he just needs to get out of Dodge. I don't know exactly what the king is, but he needs to flee. He needs to get out of here. He needs to go to safety. And so these two priests, Zadok and Abiathar, they send news to their, to their sons, uh, uh, Jonathan and Ahimeaz. Uh, these are wonderful names. And uh, he sends message through this little servant girl. So he goes, hey, we need to go to some, we got this little town about a quarter mile outside of town. Go ahead, very secretive. Don't let anybody see you. Go and tell this message uh, to my, our sons. And so she goes and did that. Unfortunately, somebody ends up seeing them. One of the servants of, of, the king, or of his son, Absalom, sees what's going on 
and he goes back to Absalom. And so Absalom sends some guards, the mob squad, and he says, go get them. You're going to go tear these guys up. And so they go looking for Jonathan, and they go looking for Ahamez. And here's what ends up happening. These two men flee another three-fourths of a mile away. They get to another town, and they hide. Apparently, there is a man there that still loves David, still faithful to him. And they go, hey, I got a well. Just hide in my well. And he's like, all right, we'll hide in the well. So they go hide in the well, and his wife, we think it is, a woman it just says, she comes, she covers up the well, and she puts some grain out, which would have been just common way to, of kind of drying out the grain. Well, these two goons end up coming and go, hey, do you know where these two guys are? And she bold-faced lies. Uh, they went that way. They went over the creek, that type of thing. And, and, and so the Bible says to us that these men looked, and they went in that direction, they searched, and then they walked away. Now, it's always difficult. You read something like that, and we're going to leave, and all you're going to be thinking about is, she lied? And that's all you're going to think. Let me just approach that. There are some times in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where people are in between the horns of a dilemma, and they have two negative things. If they do this, something bad's going to happen. If they do this, the bad thing is going to happen. And that is like real life. And so in this particular cases, and we can give you a couple scriptures where God's people have found them in those two, they had to choose the lesser of two evils, especially when it came to lying or people dying. And it says you either lie and people survive, or you don't lie and these people die. And that's the truth. So in between that, it doesn't appear as though God holds that against them, but actually uses the lie to bring something about. Now, I want to let you know, theologically, we don't have time to go into this, it doesn't mean it's sometimes okay for you to lie. It's not what it means. But here is God actually uses this in a way to be able to bring this salvation and safety to these two men. But here's what ends up happening. They end up getting out of the well. They go and they tell David what this message is. David begins to act immediately. They leave. They travel 20 miles. They get across the river Jordan, and they do it all before daylight. They're safe. Now, you sit there and go, what does it have to do with anything? In fact, it's not even a very interesting story. Again, that's the point. Follow, follow the author's intent. The author is writing, and in the beginning, all this is happening. Not you or I or anybody else ever knows that God is doing something. Amen? Until he does what? Tells us in verse 14 that what? God is doing it all. Everything that is happening is according to his will. So that means if everything that happened up to that point was God's will and God's plan, then everything after it is God's will and God's plan. Would you agree? You following with me? Well, guess what? What happens after when we know that it's God's work isn't very spectacular. It's just kind of boring. I mean, God could have done this in a lot better way, couldn't he? He had to send a message. Why not send an angel? Everybody loves angels. Look, you get a story of an angel. You sell that book. You're going to make crazy money, right? Everybody loves the angel story. And so, I mean, in angels, they, they deliver messages. We see it in other parts of the word of God. An angel coming to Mary. An angel coming to Joseph. An angel coming to the Old Testament, to Abraham. No angel here. Servant girl. We don't even know who her name is. She's the one that's passing it on. And then we get to, you know, couldn't he have taken care of these enemies in a lot better way? I mean, couldn't he have just opened up, like in the Old Testament, opened up the ground and swallowed them up? That would have been cool, right? Throw down hail on them and just, you know, kill them. I mean, that would have been awesome. But instead of killing them, do you know what ends up happening? His way of escape is, hey, you see the well over there? Go hang out in the well just for a little bit. They go hang out in the well. Even the guys didn't think that this is supernatural when it was happening. But here's my point. God doesn't always work supernaturally. He works in the natural. But even when he works in the natural, it's just as effective. It's the same exact thing. There's no difference. David, David killed Goliath. Now, think that was an amazing thing, but it wasn't supernatural in a sense. 
In other words, David didn't go out and go, go I call down the mountains of the earth to fall on you. Ha! Didn't happen. Right? And then you have, you have Samson. Samson sits there and it's a pretty amazing thing that he kills all of these men. But what does he kill them with? Laser beam out of his eye? Then a laser beam shot out of his eye and killed them all. Amazing. Now what does he do? I don't have anything. There's a jawbone of a donkey, right? And he takes it and he whips every last one of them. We see this with Gideon and, 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 his, and his mighty men, 400 mighty men. He's like up against this big battle. What is, he going to, what is God going to do? Is he going to send the death angel? Is he going to send the death angel? No. You know what he does? He goes, guys, I want you to make sure that you grab your lanterns, the clay lanterns. I want you to light them, go out, and on the count of three, I want you to smash them. That's the plan. Not very supernatural. But in every one of those situations, including our story today, there's not a one of us that walk away and say God wasn't in that wasn't supernatural. It was natural. Now, our difficulty is we love the supernatural. We love to hear about the person somewhere in the Middle East who's never heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, who has a dream of the man in white. You ever heard of this? The man in white. Oh, that's a great story. The man in white. Who's that? Is that Jesus? Is that an angel? We don't know. Who is it? And they end up coming to faith in Christ. Man, you do that. You could get a tour. You could start speaking all over the place on that. But what we don't really recognize are the stories that are told about a young man or woman who was in a church, who the church began to preach on going to all the world, preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there was a call on her life, and she ended up doing all she could to get to college. Instead of going in a, 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 a lucrative field, decided to be able to go and, and, and give her life to missions and then went to seminary. She barely got there. Then there's a little church at home that begin to pray for her. She goes out on the field. Nobody knows her. Nobody even knows her name. And slowly but surely, the opportunity she gets, she begins to befriend and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with this Muslim woman in some remote place of the earth. And over 20 years of witnessing, she sits down and this person, this one person comes to faith in Jesus Christ. And we don't champion that. But it is no less the providential work of God. It is no less effective, and it is no less God-glorifying. See, the problem with this story is we're going to walk away, and this story is going to be about the woman with the yellow Mercedes. You work your tail to the bone, man, and it turns out, the whole sermon turns out to be the illustration about the yellow Mercedes. That's usually what happens. And so here's what's going to happen. Some of you are all excited about that. You sat and said, well, i got financial problems, and when we leave this place, this is what we're doing. God, help me. And then you begin to look for that woman in the yellow Mercedes. Where is she? I can even hear it in the home. Hey, we're struggling. You heard what Pastor Mike said. There's a lady with a yellow Mercedes. We need to be able to find her. We need to pray that she finds our house. We need her to be able to come. We need to be able to happen. And we think in terms, and we keep thinking of that. We live, look, we, we, we live in a time where you, you turn on the television. I, I, don't, I don't really watch a whole lot of preachers, and you're like, you should. It would help you. Well, it probably would. But it also probably drive me to drink, and you don't want to drink in pastors. So, <laughs> so, so you're kind of watching this, and you're sitting down, and you're watching this, and here it, here it comes, and every, every time you hear it, God's got something bigger, better, and grander for you. It's right around the corner for your miracle. It's going to be a miracle, and it's going to be glorious, and it's going to be awesome. God's going to do something greater next year than he does next year. And everybody, more people than you can imagine, start, ha, ha, ha. And then he sits there and says, now, let's pass around the offering plate, shall we? Again. 
right? And so let's pass it around, and it's all for this thing. All these people are really exciting. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, and let me just set it straight before you start blasting me on Facebook. Here's, here's what it is. It's, I believe absolutely in the miracles of God. Amen? And there are times where you and I sit back, and, and sometimes... We, we, we gotta, we, sometimes we have to sit back and we go, hey, man, God, I need you to help me to, 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 to pay this bill. Or, or, God, we have this financial need. We have this physical need. And sometimes there's literally physically no way to be able to do it. Cannot be done. According to medicine, this cannot be done. You know what God's people do? They pray for the impossible because we have a God who can do the impossible. And we pray to him and we say, God, we know that you can heal us. We know that you can. We know that you created the world and created the body. God, if it be your will, please, we pray that you will, you will heal this young man. A- amen? And God can and God does, but he doesn't always do it. It's according to his sovereign will and according to his plan. Are you with me so far? But the idea is when we work through all this stuff, here, here's what I want you to know. What does frustrate me, where I do see a problem, is when people like that, or just everyday average Christians, begin to feel let down when they don't see miraculous things happening. Their inevitable conclusion is that God is not at work, and yet this is not true. He is working providentially. He's not doing a thing. He's doing trillions of things simultaneously in very common and natural ways to bring about and provide and protect and fulfill the promises to His people. Amen? See, you and I, again, we're chasing, we're chasing the yellow Mercedes. If you have a yellow Mercedes, I apologize if you are because you're in big trouble. But it is what I'm saying to you, it is no less God for God to have given you a healthy body and a good job for you to be able to go and work and for you to be able to go and to be able to instill the disciplines of a godly man and a godly woman and to be able to use your finances the way that God would have you to do it and for you to be able to stay out of debt and yet be a benevolent giver and over a 20, 30-year period finally be able to come to the point where you're debt-free. What I'm telling you is that is no less God and he deserves every bit of the glory as if he were to come and just wipe it all out. If you and I are constantly miracle-seeking, if you and I don't get this down, you and I feel duped. And it should not be just reserved when it's all done. It should be when we're in the midst of the greatest crisis that we sit back and say, I don't see it, but in my mind I understand from the Word of God and according to His truth, I know that God is at work. And I know that I may not be able to see a miracle, but He may use the very natural things in this world to be able to fulfill His purposes in my life. Miracle or no miracle, God is good. Amen? Now here's how we, how, how we wrap this story up. We're going to see next week how this ends. We're going to see the end of Absalom and David, how it all ends. Without spoiling it, I can imagine you already know how this is going to end. But what I want you to draw attention to is Absalom trusted in human wisdom, and it leads to his destruction. King David sought out the wisdom of God through the priests and God's prophets. It's the way that God would reveal to them, and his path leads to success and blessing. By doing so, the message is clear for us. Seek the will of God through his word and obey it. You're not going to understand everything that God is doing. You're not going to be able to see every time that God is ultimately doing something. That's not your responsibility to be God. It's not your responsibility to figure it all out. 
Your responsibility and my responsibility is not to understand something that hasn't been granted to us, but rather to take the Word of God that has been given to us and for us to know it. And sit back and say, God, I may not know how this whole, I may not know exactly what's going on, but what I do know is you've called me to be faithful. And I'm going to do what it is that you've called me to do. Look, there is some crazy garbage going on in the country. Would you agree? But, but I said that this week, but I could have said that two years ago. And we all would have said, amen, this is crazy garbage going on, right? We could have all that. I mean, you look and you look at, you know, this, this, this crazy laws for abortion. Let's go ahead and murder your baby and all, all, the, all these different types of things that are going on. Uh, we, we see all these shootings and we see everything else. And oftentimes, look, it's one thing to be grieved. It's another thing for a Christian to be devastated and hopeless. I got a problem with the Christians that are hopeless in the midst of all this. You know what it is? I don't care what ends up going on. And we can be grieved, and we ought to be grieved for those things. But I'll tell you this. No law, no force, no government, no power is going to keep God's sovereign will from occurring. Period. And so my job... That was a half clap, so I'll take it as a no clap. So, 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 so what, what, we'll, what we'll do is this. So what your and my responsibility is, is to sit there. We can be broken over that. But for you and I to be able to sit back and say, God, I know you got it all figured out. And in the midst of this cesspool, I may not know how it is and what it is that you're ultimately doing. But here's what I know from 2 Samuel chapter 17. You are and you will and you are working and you may use something as common as me to be able to bring about your plan. So we read the word, we're filled with it, and we obey what he calls us to do. Let's pray.